Okay, start the preview player. Yes. Still working out the live streaming thing here. All right, so I don't know how good the stream is going to go tonight. For some reason, it's only at an okay status. So we'll see. Um, but yeah, so tonight I'm going to do uh, case study number four. Good evening, everybody, by the way, anybody who's watching. And uh, I'd like to thank if any, any of uh, people who have tipped tipped me and donated recently. If any of you are watching, thank you very much. Very much appreciated. Um, so yeah, so tonight I'm going to actually do another case study on an overturned conviction. Hey Sean, good to see you again. Hey Logic MK. All right, so yeah, so tonight um, this is an interesting case. This, this uh, appeal happened in 2017. Um, I don't like to dig too back, too uh, too close to current date, uh, just mainly because sometimes um, when a conviction is overturned, the case will go back and uh, go back to trial and result in a conviction. Um, and then, yeah, so I prefer to uh, highlight cases that I know the conviction is overturned and it's going to stay that way. They're either acquitted or um, no trial, no new trial happens, so the conviction remains overturned. So this is uh, 2017, and um, this was actually a jury trial, and it was, uh, the jury convicted him, but then the judge who uh, presided over the case had the opportunity to review the facts of the case when it came to sentencing time, which is typical, to help determine the length of the sentence. So in that process, she actually had uh, basically found that the, the Crown didn't prove the case, that the, the crimes had occurred. And even though the jury convicted him, she, the judge said, you know, there's, there, there wasn't enough evidence for me to actually um, found that he committed all of these crimes, therefore I'm gonna sentence him at the lower end. So that's pretty much what she did. And uh, nonetheless, um, he uh, appealed his conviction anyway. So this is R versus LM, and I'll just I'll just read the transcript to you for people who are just listening and don't want to have to read anything. I'll read it all out for you. All right. So the appellant LM submits at his conviction after a jury trial of sexual assault of his sister-in-law NM was unreasonable and asks this court to set aside the conviction. So in a jury trial, typically the only ground you can, uh, uh, there's, you're very limited to the grounds of which you can request an appeal. And one is just that it, it was an unreasonable conviction or that the trial judge made an error in their instructions to the jury. <clears throat> That's not the case here. The case here is just that it was an unreasonable conviction. So important aspects of the complainant's evidence inextricably intertwined with her allegations were proven false. 
she had a motive to lie, and there were other features of her evidence that would have signaled to experienced jurists that it would be dangerous to convict the appellant on her evidence alone. The appellate submits that the risk of wrongful conviction <clears throat> excuse me, is too high to allow this verdict to stand. So what this says in a nutshell is that the complainant lied and it was proven that she lied, that she had a motive to lie, and that there were just other features, there were various things in her evidence that um, were bullshit. <laughs> so here's another case that, uh, yeah, she lied, 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 but yet he was convicted. So the trial at trial, here's the trial evidence. N.M. is the younger sister of the appellant's wife. So the appellant's sister-in-law, K.M. The appellant married K.M. in 1987 and they had two daughters together. N.M. was born on August 27, 1981 and came to Canada in October of 1996 at the age of 15. The complainant moved in with her older sister, the appellant, their two infant daughters, and R.M., the appellant's son by a prior relationship. Her sister was 32 years old and the appellant was 38 years old at the time. <clears throat> so basically a house filled with people, all extended family members. N.M. lived with the appellant and K.M. until September 2011 when she was 30 years old. So she's not a kid, she's a 30-year-old woman. The complainant had developed a relationship with a boyfriend. The appellant and KM disapproved of this relationship because they believed NM's boyfriend was using her to get status as a permanent resident in Canada. Friction over this issue led the complainant to move out of their home, and that same month the appellant reported NM's boyfriend to immigration authorities and advised the complainant that he had done so. So soon after, in October 2011, the complainant went to police, alleging the appellant had intercourse with her approximately 10 to 50 times between August 27, 1997 and August 26, 1999, when she was 16 and 17 years old. The Crown called two witnesses at trial, NM and FV, a friend of the complainant's sister. NM testified that KM and the appellant treated her as a slave and controlled her from the time that she moved in with them. She said that she was not allowed to go to school for her first year in Canada and was required to look after their children. She said she was not allowed to go out with friends, although she was allowed to go to work and school after the first year. She claimed that she was only allowed to visit people in the company of family. At trial, it was established that the complainant did attend an educational facility, the Alpha Center, from the time she arrived in Toronto for approximately a year. NM was then registered as a full-time student and started high school in Canada in October of 1997. Her older sister stayed at home and looked after the children throughout this time. FV testified that she socialized with NM outside the home without the appellant or other family members. FV and NM went shopping together and visited beauty salons. A defense witness, FM, a high school friend of the complainant, testified that she and the complainant hung out together after school and that the complainant often went to FM's house on her own and slept over at her home. It did not seem to FM that, she, that the complainant had a curfew. The complainant was employed at HomeSense, Winners, and a call center 
while living with the appellant and his family. She had her own cell phone and a boyfriend. She traveled freely. For example, she went to Europe in 2008. She maintained control over her own earnings and bought gifts, paid for her cell phone, and saved money for her education. The appellant and his family lived at three different locations during the period the assaults were alleged to have occurred. The first two were apartments in the same building on Lawrence Avenue East, and the first apartment was a small two-bedroom apartment. The appellant and his wife shared one bedroom, and M shared the second bedroom with the appellant's two young daughters, and RM slept in the living room. From 1997 to 98, the appellant left the home at around 6 a.m. to attend school from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. He returned home around 2.30 to 2.45 to eat or to pick up food at home, which he would bring to his night shift at the Royal Bank of Canada, located in downtown Toronto. His shift started at 4 p.m. and ended at midnight. He would arrive home as late as 1 a.m., and the complainant was also attending school from 97 to 98. Everybody was very busy. N.M. testified that she was assaulted three or four times by the appellant when the family lived in the two-bedroom apartment on Lawrence Avenue. <clears throat> she said the first incident happened when she was 16 years old. She was having an afternoon nap with the appellant's daughter in the same bed. The younger daughter was taking a nap in a crib in the room. N.M. testified that the appellant woke her to ask her where K.M. was and N.M. testified that she answered him, but that she fell back to sleep. Although she had been wearing jeans, underwear, a t-shirt, and a bra when she fell asleep, she woke up to find that her clothes had been removed. The appellant was on top of her, and she felt the appellant's penis inside her. She said that she did not wake up when the appellant undressed her. Of course, this is all utter nonsense, but moving on. N.M. testified that the second incident occurred when K.M. was out of the house overnight for a church function. L.M. denied that his wife ever went away overnight for any such event. N.M. said that the appellant had intercourse with her while his older daughter was asleep in the same bed, and the younger daughter was in the crib and R.M. was sleeping in the living room. Good God, the lengths people will go to to just come up with something completely implausible. N.M. said that the third and fourth incidents occurred when K.M. was home and asleep. She said the appellant came into the room she shared with his daughters, woke her, and had intercourse with her on each of those occasions. The family then moved into a small one-bedroom apartment in the same building for a few months in 1998. K.M. went to Europe with her daughters for around one month during this time. And the complainant alleged that L.M. assaulted her while K.M. and her daughters were away. <clears throat> how convenient question is is it convenient for her or convenient for him in the second apartment both the complainant and RM slept on mattresses in the living room the appellant slept in the bedroom and M testified that the first time she was sexually assaulted by the appellant in that apartment LM came into the living room while his son was asleep took her to his bedroom and had sexual intercourse with her Subsequently, she would wait until RM was asleep and would then go into LM's bedroom. She said they had habitual, they had habitually had intercourse at the time. <coughs> Excuse me. So now she's saying that it was a welcomed event. In March 1999, the family moved into a two-story four-bedroom home in which NM had her own bedroom. 
The complainant testified that there were at least 10 sexual assaults in that home. She said that the appellant would come to her room to have sexual intercourse with her when KM was sleeping across the hall. NM only described the first incident that occurred in the home in detail. In describing that assault, the complainant testified that the appellant came into her room after midnight and woke her up. He told her to remove her nightgown and they had intercourse. The complainant said the sexual act stopped after she turned 18 years old on August 27, 1999, when she told the appellant to stop abusing her. She testified that he never tried to have intercourse with her again after she asked him to stop. She said she did not seek help from her family, nor did she ask to move in with them because she was entirely under the appellant's control. She continued to reside with her sister and the appellant until the dispute arose about her boyfriend when she was 30. So the appellant argued that the complainant falsely, the, the appellant's argument is that he, uh, the complainant falsely accused him of sexual assaults to avenge his having reported her boyfriend to immigration authorities. There's your motive. There's your context. To rebut the claim of recent fabrication, the Crown called FV, who surfaced to say that NM complained that she had been sexually assaulted by the appellant in 2007. FV provided a statement to police on October 20th, 2014, just days before testifying. It appeared that NM had taken part in a small claims court proceeding that FV commenced against the appellant and his wife over the use of a credit card. The appellant argued at trial that F.V. returned the favor by testifying at the criminal trial and falsely supporting the complainant's evidence. Families, aren't they wonderful? The appellant testified at trial and denied that he had ever had sexual contact with the complainant. His evidence was unshaken on cross-examination, but yet the jury convicted him. Now we move on to the analysis. This is the appeal court analysis of, based on the evidence we just heard, the jury found him guilty, and uh, the, 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 the ground of this appeal is an unreasonable verdict, which brings us to a credibility assessment. So the appeal court has no other argument to grapple with other than credibility assessments, which appeal courts generally don't touch. And they say that right here. Appellate courts rarely intervene in credibility assessments by a judge or jury, as such determinations attract a high degree of deference. Triers of fact have the inestimable advantage of seeing the witness testify and hearing all of the evidence over the course of the trial, which in this case lasted 11 days. This court, however, is obligated to review the reasonableness of criminal convictions. In exercising this authority, the court must review the trier of facts, credibility assessments, and factual findings, bearing in mind the trier of facts advantaged, advantaged position and the appellate court's limited scope of review. There are some cases where judicial experience teaches that the risk of wrongful conviction is simply too high to allow a jury verdict to stand. Where a witness has a motive to fabricate an accusation and falsely describes significant factual matters that are closely connected to or intertwined with the criminal conduct alleged, this sends danger signals to experienced jurists 
that a jury might not appreciate. The role of the appellate court is not to substitute its own judgment for that of the jury, but to determine whether a properly instructed jury could reasonably have rendered a guilty verdict. And then it describes, as pointed out in another case, the reasonableness review provides an important safeguard against miscarriages of justice. In Binieris at paragraph 42, um, the court described the nature of that review in these terms. To the extent that the appellate review has a subjective component, it is the subjective assessment of an assessor with judicial training and experience that must be brought to bear on the exercise of reviewing the evidence upon which an allegedly unreasonable conviction rests. That in turn requires the reviewing judge to import his or her knowledge of the law and the expertise of the courts gained through the judicial process over the years, not simply his or her personal experience and insight. So basically it's saying, when a judge is faced with a credibility contest, they must use legal ease in order to weigh the evidence and come to a determination and not use their own personal experience and their own personal bias. Of course it happens anyway, juries do it, judges do it, and we end up in the appeal court here. Moving on, uh, the appeal court continues to say, I understand that Benarius, uh to instruct that the knowledge gained through the reviewing court's broad exposure to the criminal process provides insights into credibility assessments and fact-finding not available to jurors who experience is generally limited to a single case. Those insights must inform the reasonableness assessment. Um, in this case, it is clear that the trial judge had significant misgivings about the credibility and reliability of the complainant's evidence. The trial judge was compelled to sentence the appellant as a result of the jury verdict, and the trial judge made her own findings of fact as required to decide the appropriate and proper sentence to impose. She found that the Crown did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that any of the sexual assaults occurred, save one incident in 1999, which is the minimum consistent with the jury verdict. What that is saying is that because the jury found him guilty, the judge could not um, defy that guilty verdict. She had to come up with her sentencing based on the fact that he's guilty, even though she pretty much pared, pared it all down to he's almost not guilty, but because the jury found him guilty, I have to act as if he's guilty, even though judging by the way she handled the case, she didn't think he was guilty, but she had to still pick one of the charges as a minimum in order to in order to uh, be level with the, the guilty verdict and comply with the guilty verdict at this point. But nonetheless, the complainant's evidence that she was enslaved by the appellant and his family was demonstrably false. There was no secret. <clears throat> at, at paragraph 76 and 78 of the sentencing judgment, the trial judge reje rejected entirely the complainant's evidence that she was enslaved by the appellant and his family. So the judge in her sentencing verdict uh, reasons says this, NM also testified that she was a virtual slave of LM and his wife, her sister KM. In particular, 
NM said that she was brought over from the Congo to look after their younger daughters. So they're all from the Congo. Later, she alleged that she was forced to work in the family restaurant without pay. She also complained that she was never allowed to go anywhere. She maintained that after she told LM to stop abusing her just after her 18th birthday, LM started to mistreat her by becoming even more controlling over her so that she felt like a virtual prisoner in her home. NM testified that LM and KM confiscated her personal papers in order to control her and that when she fled the family home to move into a shelter on September 4th, 2011, she left her important identification and other documents behind at the family home. That's an interesting point. She left the house to move into a shelter. So I'm going to assume that that is where the false allegation fabrication began, was from assistance from somebody in this women's shelter. <clears throat> she obviously wasn't happy in the home. They weren't getting along and she found a way out. And the shelter basically helped her. Who knows what else they helped her with, but they ended up in criminal court. So the trial judge goes on to say, I am not satisfied that the Crown has proven these aggravating factors beyond a reasonable doubt for the following reasons. NM's allegations that she was brought over to look after her young nieces is contradicted by the evidence when she ultimately accepted that she started school very soon after she arrived in Canada in October of 96 and that she entered full-time high school in grade 9 in September 97. She therefore could not have looked after her nieces on a full-time basis. I accept LM's testimony that NM was a full-time student and that his wife looked after their children because it is corroborated, it is corroborated, and makes sense. Wow. A judge actually cares about evidence that corroborates an accused person's defense. That's, that's promising that that's, this does happen. NM's evidence that she could never go anywhere or do anything was contradicted by LM and NM's close friends at school, FM. She testified that NM was permitted to go out with her friends and stay overnight at FM's house on weekends. FM testified that she envied NM who did not appear to have a curfew. As already noted, FM's father confirmed FM's evidence as did other writers of the letters of support who closely interacted with NM and her family. Further, the fact that NM came and went to her part-time employment at HomeSense and her subsequent full-time employment following her graduation and could visit FV at nail salons negates NM's assertions that she was a virtual prisoner in LM's house. NM alleged that her identification on uh, that her identification and citizenship documents were removed from her and that she left the house without them on September 4th, 2011, but she did not see who took her papers or where they were placed. LM denied touching NM's papers and stated that he saw her citizenship card in her drawer when he and his family returned to their home after NM had left the home. As LM pointed out during his testimony at trial, he and his family were out when NM left the home, and so NM could have retrieved her papers and taken them with her. This which makes sense. <clears throat> In consequence, I do not accept NM's evidence that her papers were taken away from her or that she could not retrieve them when she left the home. The trial judge had the advantage of seeing the witness 
witnesses testify. Her assessment attenuates concerns that might otherwise deter an appellate court from intervening in a case like this. She rejected the complainant's evidence that the appellant had intercourse with her while his two-year-old child lay on the bed beside her as improbable and rejected the evidence that intercourse could have occurred undetected in such small quarters occupied by four other by four others in addition to the complainant and the appellant so six people in one small room as in r versus mn had the jury been instructed on the potential significance of nm's lies that a deliberate lie on an important matter would be very significant in their assessment of whether guilt beyond a reasonable doubt had been proven on the basis of a complainant's evidence, an appellate court might have greater confidence in the verdict. Further, the allegations described by the complainant were improbable in a number of respects. The appellant's work and school hours and the complainant's school hours make it difficult to see how the assaults could have occurred as described. The appellant's evidence about his absences from the home was unchallenged. However, the solidity of this evidence was urged upon the jury by the trial crown as a factor supportive of his guilt by saying his daily routine around the time of the offenses had him out of the house most of the day. Is this true or is this a convenient thing so as to afford him little opportunity to commit the offenses. In this case, the risk of a wrongful conviction is too high. A jury acting reasonably could not be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused was guilty. The verdict of guilt is set aside and an acquittal entered. Congratulations, Mr. LM to you. So, all right, this, this, this piece here, I really, really, this is really important. All right. The trial crown, the, the crown at trial told the jury basically that the man had solid evidence to prove that the time slots, the, the time issue made it impossible for her claim to be true. The proof was there, but the crown instead told the jury that is believe that this is not true that this is just simply a man who is just trying to uh show that he would have had little opportunity to commit the fence the offense but there's still some opportunity which means he probably did it so basically take the affirmative positive evidence turn it into a negative. This is what crowns these disgusting feminist crowns will do. And I've seen this in many cases where the issue here, not only is the only issue he said, she said, or she said, he said, did he do it? She said he did it. He says, nah, but the other issue is opportunity. And oftentimes judges and juries, apparently as in this case, and crowns will push the idea that in cases like this, the opportunity was there because they all lived in the house together. Doesn't matter if they had work schedules, school schedules, um, party schedules that all conflicted with each other, which would have made it pretty much virtually impossible for them to all be at home at the same time. 
But the fact is, there would have been tiny opportunity, and that's the only opportunity that a disgusting sexual predator or any man would need to become a sexual predator. This is the this is what crowns push on judges, and some judges believe it, and juries will as well. And that happened in this case. But thank goodness this appeal panel um, saw through it. Now you may also be wondering, what the hell? The judge obviously didn't believe any of this, but yet she still had to go through and sentence him. Yeah, that is a... I don't know what mechanism there is. I guess jury nullification or something like that. Like, if if a judge has an opportunity to nullify a, uh, a jury verdict based on what they believe is, is an incorrect verdict. I don't know if we have such a thing here, honestly, in, in Canadian courts. It's not discussed at all here. Um, but it is an interesting question. Why couldn't the judge um, intervene on an obviously wrong verdict to save this man so much heartache and the whole family and everything and the whole system, right? Because he wouldn't have had to have paid for, paid for this appeal. Um, he probably did some time in jail for all we know. Um, the, it's a really, that's a really, yeah. See? All right, I'm gonna bring the bring this up here. Fillerator, why can't the judge make a finding of innocence in a jury trial? Yeah, see, yeah, I was just talking about that. You probably already heard me. Um, I don't know. I've this is the only case like this that I've ever seen so far. Um, so <laughs> it's a pretty special case. It's pretty spectacular. Um, a spectacular failure, but then a spectacular save on the appeal panel's part. Um, the judges in this particular appeal panel, the particular combination of judges here, Sharp, Rensburg, and Pardue, seem to be a reasonable combination of appeal panel judges. If you look at these cases out of Ontario, it's not always the case. You have a, a very unreasonable panel. Jury nullification is an action taken by a juror. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I really don't know how... See, this is, this is where it brings us the, to the question of um, how much power does a judge have to make sure that a, a man, an, an innocent accused man, is being tried fairly? And that includes uh, the crown. I guess one of the mistakes that was sort of, you know, lightly alluded to in this appeal decision was the fact that the Crown made such a, a grotesque submission by by saying, you know, his daily routine around the time of the fences had him out of the house most of the day. Is this true? Or is this just a convenient thing for him to say to diminish the opportunity to commit the offense? Like, that's, that's just grotesque. Um, at that point, you would think somebody would have stood up and made an objection. Um, the defense attorney could have objected to that, or even the judge could have potentially said something. The other thing the judge uh, could have done, and I think it was mildly alluded to, maybe, where was it? It was basically the judge could have clarified to the jury um, about finding reasonable doubt based on evidence that obviously didn't, uh, you know, 
obviously wasn't true and that was just disproven right in front of you. Um, a judge does have the power to point those pieces of evidence out to let the jury know that basically, you know, these, these pieces of evidence are false. Um, so come to the right conclusion. <laughs> but again, she would have to be so careful. The judge would have to be so careful in those instructions too, because then that could be, if, if, if the jury were to have acquitted, then the crown would have, uh, appealed the acquittal based on something that the judge said in the jury's instructions. And then, you know, this guy would have had to start all over again. So I don't know, like, uh, somebody just said here, who was that? Was that Sean? Damned if you don't. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, absolutely. And th this defense lawyers, attorneys not objecting when they should be is another problem I see in transcripts. Um, I've read enough transcripts to see, oh, well, oh my God, why didn't the defense object here? Um, and the reason why I've learned, and Sean, you probably know this too, but the reason I've come to learn why that's so important is because when it does come to an appeal, if the case does come to a point of appeal, um, the, the fact, if a defense attorney objects or not, could make or break your appeal argument. An appeal panel could say, well, the defense attorney had no problem with that. They didn't object that issue, object to that issue. So we have no problem. We see no problem. Therefore, there was no problem. So this is the problem with dump truck defense attorneys, shitty attorneys, defense attorneys that aren't paying attention to your own case, which, you know, is deciding your future. They're just sitting there twiddling their thumbs or twiddling away on their iPhones or their computers or their iPads. Um, while the crown is running the case and nobody else is actually paying attention to what's going on except for you know maybe the guy who the innocent accused person who's like jabbing his lawyer you know like uh, something's wrong with that or what do you think of that and he's just like uh, don't worry about it uh, you know this happens a lot so you you know if anybody out here is watching um who has a case or pending a case or you know, is learning a law student, whatever. If, if you are defending somebody, you need to object to every little fucking thing that's wrong with the crown, every little thing that's wrong with the witness statements, every little thing that you know your client um, would object to or has contradict, you know, contradicting evidence um, otherwise to, to, to that point you need to make sure your defense attorney gets up and objects to every single point because you just never know if you need to go to an appeal you need to you need to have an appeal and you need to give a reason you need to give you know context for reasons for the appeal panels to overturn or just even entertain a, a ground for appeal <clears throat> Are these crowns fired or subject to corrective action at all for these sorts of tactics? I don't know. I don't believe so. No, they're not. Um, even if you were to write a complaint about a crown attorney, I believe, as far as I understand, they're pretty much immune. Um, there was actually, the star did some investigation at some point in the early 2000s about 
how crown attorneys just get away with so much and they are never disciplined and yet they continue to practice. Although sometimes they are disciplined and then I find that they're disciplined quietly and they, um, you know, on a perhaps mutually agreeable um, circumstance will leave the crown, will leave the attorney general, they'll, they'll leave the, the crown prosecution and then they will come on, they will move on to become defense lawyers. And that's why I'm very weary of defense lawyers who say that they used to be a crown. I have to wonder, why aren't they a crown anymore? Were they using dirty tactics just to convict people for the fun of it, for the fun of the game? Um, you know, you might not want that person on your side as a defense person because Dirty tricks can get your case in trouble, can get you in trouble, and the dirty tricks that they're employing might not always be in your favor. Plus, they already have relationships with crown prosecutors that might also be dirty, and that crown prosecutor might be the dude who, or the, or the woman who's prosecuting you, and the two of them together have some sort of, you know, behind the scenes relationship that you know nothing about. So I just don't trust that, you know, oh, my defense attorney used to be a crown attorney, so he's going to be really good because he knows all the dirty tricks of the crown. Well, maybe that can work in your favor, but I wouldn't count on it. You still can't leave your entire case into the hands of your defense attorney. You still have to make sure that they are working for you. You still have to do a lot of the work for your own defense, even when you have an attorney. And that is keeping tabs on your defense attorney, making sure they're making the deals you want them to make, and making sure that they're prepared to object to the deals that you don't want them to make. And uh, crowns can put in their submissions, Logic MK says crowns can put in their submissions right in the end of the trial. I'm not sure if anyone can object. Yeah, that's true. Um, at the end of the trial, basically after the witness statements of the witnesses have all given their statements, um, the Crown and the defense both have an opportunity to just summarize their case to the judge, and that goes on record. So sometimes that doesn't actually happen inside the courtroom. It's actually, you know, submitted after the witness, all of the, the testimony. Um, so yeah, that's that's probably true. There's really never a chance to object to actual submissions, which is dangerous too, I think, because that's where a lot of the mistakes are made. Um, the Crown will repackage the case in their submission, give it to the judge, and the judge will just basically read the submissions, assuming that they are an accurate summary of what actually took place in the trial. When you look at the transcripts of the trial, you'll oftentimes find that that's not the case. The crown was dirty and misapprehended all sorts of evidence left, right, and center. And then you have a judge basing their decision on that misapprehended, mispackaged, missummarized, misrepresented trial testimony. And she'll make, the, that judge can make a faulty decision based on that. Just like even in front of a jury, it can happen because that's the last thing the jury is going to remember is the submission, the final summary of what everybody heard. That's a very crucial part of the trial that I don't think many people talk much about um, or realize. In fact, when I read trial transcripts, 
um, to uh, see uh, that, you know, to, to find the uh, trial transcripts where the person is appealing their conviction, the first thing I want to read are the Crown's submissions. I start with that, actually. I read the Crown submissions first, and then I compare that to the, ju the judge's reasonings and look for mismatches, because there's always going to be a mismatch. Often there will be at least one mismatch. So what that shows you is that the judge just took what the Crown said and um, even misapprehended what the Crown said in some way. Now once I've made those that comparison between the Crown submission and the judge's reasonings, then I dig for the Crown submissions. I compare the Crown submissions to the defense submissions and oftentimes I find that they're two, you know, two completely different arguments. It's as if they're not even talking about the same case. So that's a headache. And then I go from that to taking the Crown submissions and matching it up, her specific, the specific submissions made and matching it up with the actual witness testimonies that was in the transcript. And then that's where you find all sorts of headaches and, and uh, misapprehensions, misrepresentations. Anybody could do this for their own case. You, you just have to have your own transcripts to do it. And it, it takes days and concentration and a lot. I've, I've spent days and days and months doing this. Um, and I've actually had to, you know, go back and read stuff over and over and over again. Um, stew over something at night while I'm sleeping and then wake up refreshed with a new perspective of something else to look for, things like that. But it's almost as if it's done on purpose, you know, just to make it impossible to overturn a conviction that should never have happened in the first place. Um, Fillerator says, oh, wait, Lone Wolf, hey, Lone Wolf Logic, haven't seen you in a while. Um, have you looked into any defense lawyers that are credible in cases you and Diana Davis should, Davison should compile a list? <laughs> Um, I know Diana works with some lawyers, but I, you know, there's a couple of them that she mentions every now and then, but, um, you know, I don't, I, I have an issue with working closely or not necessarily working closely with lawyers, but, um, compiling a list, I guess, or, you know, recommending defense lawyers to anybody. I, I will not do that actually. Um, I might recommend a law firm um, in general that I know do good work, uh, but they have different lawyers and different teams, you know, assigned to different cases. So I wouldn't know, you know, but I have a personal ethical issue with actually recommending lawyers because you never know that lawyer might turn out to not be working in your favor. Um, or, you know, I could help be held potentially uh, liable for recommending a specific lawyer to somebody and that case doesn't work out and then that person is now pissed because I recommended a lawyer that for their reasons they felt screwed them, railroaded them, dump trucked them, or you know didn't do what they wanted them to do, right? So you know I, I'm not gonna put that kind of load on my own plate. <laughs> So, and you know, I, I have an aversion towards lawyers anyway. I don't trust really any of them. Um, I like talking to them to a certain extent. Um, 
and I have talked to lawyers, defense lawyers extensively um, about the problems within the law, but I find that I myself can be a little too aggressive because, you know, I'm basically looking at them going, how can you work in this fucking system that's a constant uphill battle where it's impossible for you to defend anybody when you know they're innocent? Like, how do you get up every day? How do you, how do you do that? Where do you find the balls to do that? Like, how do you stay sane, you know? And then it's not the nicest conversation. So it's, uh, yeah, it's me and lawyers, just, uh. um, so Philorator, Diana Davison said in her video uploaded yesterday that she will be in Toronto for a week or two sometime soon working on a case. Yeah. Yeah. She comes to Toronto all the time. Um, I haven't seen her in quite a while, but, uh, yeah, she's always got her reasons for coming to Toronto. So Logic MK. The judges have a problem of not fact-checking to see if the crown was feeding the judge false facts. Yes, thank you for pointing that out, Logic MK. Um, when it does come to uh, the judge reviewing the submissions that are submitted to them by the defense and the crown, in particular the crown, um, <clears throat> you would expect that the judge would want to fact-check fact those submissions to ensure that it's a proper summary that the crown isn't trying to you know slide one through right pull a skeezy move uh because they do it i've seen it i know they do it it's uh it's an objective fact <laughs> and uh the, the the problem is once it's done and a judge falls for it it's almost impossible to undo it's really difficult but yeah, you would think that a judge would actually take the time, especially since they take two, three, four months sometimes to release their verdict um, and write it, that they would actually go back into the transcripts, the trial witness statement testimony transcripts to compare it and fact check the key points that the Crown summarizes in their submission. But from what I've seen, they're not doing it. Some judges do, and I love it when I see a decision where I know a judge has done that. But it's rare. I think it's more, maybe it's not as rare as, as I think it is, but I think it's all, it's, it's happening too often where a judge is too lazy to go back and compare the actual witness statements to the Crown's final submissions. Um, Sean says uh, to Logic MK that that is more like an inquisitorial system. It doesn't happen in a common law system. Uh, are you talking about fact-checking to see if the crown is actually feeding the judge the proper facts? Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know what you mean there, Sean, but uh, no, it's... I, well, I just went and explained everything, and I know there's a little bit of a delay here, so um, maybe maybe everything I explained is a little different than, than what you were thinking. Mm. Okay, guys. Well, we've been, been going on for an, almost an hour here. All right, Sean. Cool. 
Hey, do you guys have any uh, any questions before I shut this down for the evening? No? Okay. So just a reminder, uh, let's see, to anybody who's watching this for the first time, please subscribe, like, like, uh, watch my videos and uh, share them around. Um, yeah. And uh, check out the t-shirts and uh, if you're interested. And uh, tip jar, donation jar is always open. And thank you again for people who have so graciously tipped and, and donated. I am um, ever so thankful. I am working on a newsletter. Um, just having some technical issues with that. But I am working on a newsletter. So stay tuned for people who have subscribed. And if you haven't subscribed to my newsletter, go to my website, socialtheorywatch.org, and subscribe to my newsletter. There's You can do it all over the place on the website, at the bottom, on the blog, um, and there's also a little pop-up that comes up. Um, just enter your email address and uh, add yourself to my mailing list. And uh, yeah, so um, I will be sending out some uh, I'm making an effort to send out newsletters, so <laughs> it's just, it's, uh, yeah, I'm trying to plan it out properly. I want to send out quality stuff, you know what I mean? All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot for joining. Yeah, <laughs> nobody ever expects the Spanish Inquisition until you've been just body snatched by cops out of the workplace thrown into a cop car, thrown into an interrogation cell, and charged with a sex crime that nobody needs to prove ever happened. Yeah. Then suddenly you find yourself a victim of the Spanish Inquisition. Um, all right. So anyone interested, uh, pick up the rules for Queen's Bench or Superior Court in Ontario. It helps with understanding of the system. Yeah, it's always good to read like actual books that come out of the system to kind of um, understand where these people are coming from. Thanks for that tip. I'll write that down, Sean. Um, cool. Alrighty, guys. All right. I'm going to close it down now for the night. Thanks all for joining. And uh, oh, yeah, check out my phallometric testing videos. It's, it's a horrific material. But if you don't know anything about it, it's what happens to you if you are convicted of a sex crime and when you are maintaining your innocence and you know you're innocent of the crime um, you need to be aware of this stuff and uh, stay tuned for uh, the subsequent materials that I'm going to put out on that topic so and share it with people as well all right everybody thanks again have a lovely lovely evening bye